0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So how do Canadians feel about Canada's relationship with China? New poll out that took a look at that and asked that question. Let's find out what the answer is. The CEO of Ipsos, Daryl Brooker, joins us now to talk about it. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning, Simi. Now I have to say I I'm not surprised at all by these results because this is definitely kind of anecdotally I think what people have been feeling.
2: Yeah, actually, I was a bit surprised. Really, <laughs> and the reason I am surprised, yeah, uh, the reason I am surprised is uh, actually Canadians have a I would say a reasonably sophisticated understanding of of what the the state of play is uh, in that uh, they realize that uh, they just that uh, striking back at China or or having an opinion about China that suggests that the government should take a a very aggressive approach, people understand that that doesn't come without a cost. So they understand that uh, there are trade-offs here. Uh, And normally when you do public opinion research, what you usually find is it's pretty easy for people to say, you know, I'm really for something or I'm really against something without thinking through the consequences. Here they're at least thinking about the consequences and you can see it in in their answers.
1: Yeah, run through some of those for me.
2: So when it comes to standing up uh, to China, particularly on the issue of uh, Hong Kong, 75% of us want uh, want our government to do that. Uh, We should reduce our trade reliance on China so people understand that we do have a big uh, trade relationship with the United States. 82% of us agree with that. Uh, But could we sever our economic ties with China? Well, only 38% of Canadians agree with that. So what what you, you see in all of this is that people understand that um, there, there could be issues uh, economically to Canada when it comes to severing our relationship. Furthermore, when you ask people whether or not uh, we should be careful about offending China, about half of us say that we should. So people recognize the status of China in the world, not just as a um, you know uh, in terms of its population size, it's mm-hmm. the largest population in the world, but uh, what they also recognize is that there could be negative ramifications to Canada. Particularly, I would say in this instance, trade issues, because when you take a look at Saskatchewan, Manitoba and Alberta, they're the places that have been suffering due to agriculture and their dependence on agriculture, where China has been striking back. People understand that you just can't hold these opinions and act on these opinions without there potentially being a consequence here.
1: You're so right, though. 82% said that we should reduce reliance on trade, and yet 49% also say we should be careful not to offend the Chinese government. How do those two things go together?
3: Uh,
2: exactly. They understand that whatever we have to do, we have to be careful about it. But, you know, what's interesting is if, uh, you know, I was looking at this in the context of, say, for, the, for example, the United States, the opinions would probably be somewhat similar, where people would say, uh, you know, we shouldn't be completely dependent on, you know, one trading partner. I mean, when you compare the amount of trade Canada has with uh, with the United States to, to China, the United States is way, way more, um, and uh, governments in the past over, over and one of the reasons we do have more trade with China is that Canada has been trying to diversify its trading relationships. But they would say the same kind of thing. We shouldn't be so dependent. But normally, um, having the opinion that we need to be careful about it would apply to the United States because they're so close and you know they're our neighbor and we have such a strong relationship. I was surprised by the fact that people saw that there were those, these types of consequences now for China as well.
1: Hmm. Okay, and how do people feel about the way our government is handling this?
2: They actually think that they're doing a reasonably good job. So when um, we uh, ask them whether or not uh, 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 the prime minister is doing a good a job of handling um, the relationship with China, 58% say that the government is doing a good job. So almost 60% of us say that under the circumstances they're doing a reasonably good job. And striking the right balance between defending Canadian Rights and in uh, and, and, and managing the relationship with China, so you know both both sides of the coin sixty two percent of us think that we're striking the right balance so uh, while there's a lot of uh, you know if you I'm sure you do look at Twitter there's a lot of criticism about what the government is doing. most Canadians understand that the, that the prime minister and, and the government under uh, are, are working under difficult circumstances, and they think that they're under these difficult circumstances. They're just they're at least performing acceptably.
1: All right, Daryl, thank you so much.
2: My my uh, uh, well, I appreciate it too. Thank you very much.
1: That's Ipsos CEO Daryl Bricker who joined us to talk about their latest survey that asked Canadians how they feel about Canada's relationship with China. Eighty-two percent said that China, Canada should reduce reliance on trade with China. Seventy-five percent said that Canada should do more to stand up to China. Fifty-eight percent say they believe the Trudeau government is actually handling the situation well. And 49% say that we should be careful not to offend the Chinese government. So, obviously, some of that is contradictory, right? 82% say we shouldn't trade as much with them, and yet 49% say we shouldn't offend them. Well, can't do all of it now, can we? If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. And hey, the other big question that we are asking people today, and this is a very important one, Those COVID-19 numbers are worrying for BC. You can hear the concern now in Dr. Bonnie Henry's voice. Is it time for us to shut some bars and nightclubs down again? She clearly feels that that is where the big issues are. Would you support bars and nightclubs being closed? Are you changing your habits right now? Thinking, okay, we're going to have to rethink what we're doing for the next little while.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: When it comes to standing up uh, to China, particularly on the issue of uh, Hong Kong, 75% of us want uh, want our government to do that, Uh, we should reduce our trade reliance on China. Uh, But could we sever our economic ties with China? Well, only 38% of Canadians agree with that.
1: Okay, so that was Ipso's Public Affairs CEO, Daryl Bricker. We just spoke to him a couple of minutes ago here on the show. Most people probably don't realize how aggressively Canada has pursued a trading relationship with China in the past 20, 30 years. But we also know that this year and the year before haven't been easy ones in that relationship with China. Joining us now to talk more about those results and the current state of that relationship is Matthew Fisher, longtime military analyst who writes commentary for Global News. Good morning, Matthew.
3: Good morning.
1: Do you think it's time Canada seriously considered changing that relationship?
3: I think it is well, well, well past time. The the ipsos figures and what Daryl Bricker was talking about, uh, I think emphatically show that Canadians are uncomfortable with the government's position, uh, putting all our eggs in this one basket, basically, in Asia with China. And uh, despite the kidnapping of the two Michaels, uh, uh, Canada has said very little uh, publicly in a harsh way about what is a kidnapping Uh, about the Uyghur minority we haven't been uh, as strong uh, on Hong Kong as some other countries have been and and the way China's uh, broken all its agreements regarding it about about the South China Sea Canada's been very quiet about uh, China's aggression against six or seven countries in the South China Sea going back a couple of years all of these things and what you referred to Uh, Simi, which is uh, this trade relationship and how ardently we have sought it. I I just think you're absolutely right. Canadians don't know uh, how much we have wanted that, how many trade delegations have gone there sponsored by the federal government, how our uh, past ambassador there and the current ambassador are basically uh, China fanboys, ardent supporters of great trade. And uh, this policy to me is very wrong-headed when we have a lot of other options.
1: So how do we take a step back from that? Like 49% of the people in that survey we just talked about also said that we shouldn't offend China. So there is a concern that you do too much and you're going to offend them. How do we disentangle ourselves from this?
3: Well, you don't need to indulge in rhetoric that they consider insulting. Anything we do, they will get upset about if we... Um, uh, sever some trade ties, if we diminish some trade ties, if we ban Huawei 5G, of course there's going to be a a loud Chinese reaction. But at some point uh, we have to take a stand. Don't insult China but just look for trade in other places. Very hard for China to make its case to the world that for example Canada or Australia or someone else is treating us badly is if all we have done is look For other trading partners, uh, it's very difficult for them to criticize us. And we have great options. Taiwan, for starters, just across the strait, wants a lot more trade with Canada. Very high-tech, very high-tech economy. Uh, Japan, India, Vietnam, uh, big economies, uh, a lot of people, they want a lot more trade with Canada, too. Their diplomats have told me this repeatedly, and they've been aghast at how little Canada seems interested in diversifying its trade. And then there are all those other countries right. over there, South Korea, Malaysia. They're great opportunities.
1: Do you think, though, this is the time for that? Do you get a sense that things are changing?
3: I think uh, uh, this poll confirms a slide that's been taking place for a couple of years in terms of canadian public opinion and our politicians are of course supposed to be sensitive to public opinion well canadians are saying look somewhere else so i think it is high time and yes canadians are also saying don't get into a war of words with china i think we can avoid that but we have to be prepared for the fact that almost anything we do will get china uh, angry what we have to do is. Uh, Uh, Simi, is just be more imaginative, more creative. You know, so much trade with the United States. It's easy. That's what we did. Now with China, it's easy. We should be looking at 10 and 15 and 25 different possibilities, not just one or two.
1: All right, Matthew, thank you very much for your time on this. Uh, Thank you, Simi. Appreciate that. That's Matthew Fisher, military journalist and global news commentator, talking about uh, Canada's relationship with China, he says it's oh, it's time for us to get over our dreams of a mutually beneficial relationship, and we need to move on from that. Clearly, the poll that Daryl Burker was talking about earlier shows that Canadians, uh, in, in a lot of terms, agree with some of what Matthew was saying there. 82% of the Canadians polled said that we should be reducing our reliance on trade with China. China, 75% say Canada should do more to stand up to China.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Lots of details to break down in this province wide COVID 19 survey done by the provincial government. Wanted to know how people are coping with what's going on and how you're feeling about the way COVID 19 has just kind of taken over everything. Joining us now is Nikki Reitmeier with more on this. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Did you take this survey when it was available? I did, but you know what? It was so long ago because it was available a while back that I don't really remember a lot of what they asked.
4: Yeah, this survey, it was up and it was available from April 24th to May 12th. I remember my parents took this survey and, and I remember them pestering me, you got to take the survey, you got to take the survey. Everybody's taken the survey. And yeah. lo and behold, they were right. Like everybody took the survey. <laughs>
1: 394,000 people yeah. in BC.
4: Unreal. That's Essentially, it's one in 10 people in, in the province of British Columbia took the survey, which is great Amazing. news for data collectors. I mean, they're, they're obviously thrilled with those results. And it gives us a good indication of how people were feeling, especially through those early days of the pandemic. So the vast majority of respondents, interestingly enough, were women, accounting for 70.2% of the surveys that were filled out. But keep in mind that when we walk through this data, it's been weighted. So there isn't a, a gender bias that you're going to see in the results. It's been weighted accordingly so that we do have um, weighted reflection of of kind of what people were thinking. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's funny when you think about those early days of the pandemic as well and and what people's behavior were and how perhaps that's changed now, because when that survey went out, you know, what was that, late April, early May, 90% of people said, I'm avoiding gatherings. 90% of people. And obviously, we don't see that now. I mean, we're in stage three, things are a little bit different. But you really get a sense of how people's mindset was much different in those early days as well.
1: Right. Okay, let's talk about the mental health issues too. How many people said
4: that their mental health was affected by the pandemic? Yeah, this was really high. 47% of adults said that they had experienced a decrease in mental health. So uh, quite a large figure. Of course, it was even higher when we start looking at a younger demographic of people. Once we get into younger people, 18 to 29, 55% of them said that they were also experiencing a decrease in the their quality of mental health. So that's a lot of the population. You know, basically you have half of people, be they adults or half of people, little over half of young people saying that their mental health was at stake, especially in those early days of the pandemic. It makes you wonder where they're at now. Have things gotten worse? Have things gotten better? And this conversation, I think, also can carry over to what people's alcohol can consumption intake was
1: mm-hmm.
4: it did go up for most categories so alcohol consumption for young people went up 36% that was a bit higher than the general population of adults Eight, uh, 28% is the increase for the adult population in alcohol consumption but still you know a big a big jump for people saying they're experiencing mental health problems and a big jump for people in consuming alcohol be that out of boredom, which I think was the case for a lot of people, or be it as a a coping mechanism for those mental health issues.
1: Was there any sense that because of the financial problems that people were drinking more or unemployment
4: issues? Yeah, I mean, that's a part of it too, as well. If, if you're at home, and you're not really doing a lot, you're not working, there might be a tendency to drink a little bit more. And again, maybe it's a coping mechanism for depression. If you are unemployed, if you're fearful, because you don't have a job anymore, then maybe you're going to be drinking a little bit more as well. And in those early days, when this survey went out, 15% of British Columbians said that they weren't working. So that was right following sort of the height of the pandemic in those early days at 15 5% uh, 5% of British Columbians said that they'll likely have to move due to affordability mm. issues. And I thought that one was so interesting when I was reading it, because I was actually just speaking to a girlfriend yesterday who said she might have to move back home to Ontario again. So she's been living out here for think, right. about two and a half years now. But said, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. My, you know, my job dried up months ago. Right, right at the earliest part of the pandemic, when the survey would have gone out. Really, she lost her job, and you know, she's been kind of living off Serb. And she goes, now I'm at that stage where I don't think I can afford to live on Serb anymore. I'm going to have to fly home to Ontario, most likely next month, and move back in with my parents again. So, you know, that's an example yeah. of someone saying, I'm going to have to move because of the affordability. When your apartment costs you over two thousand dollars a month. You know, your CERB costs you, cost you $2,000 a month and you fingers crossed you're able stuck. to put a little bit of weight yeah. for taxes. Yeah, you're really, really stuck. So I think that that's not um, an isolated no. anecdotal sort of example of someone having to move, of course, because of the the financial situation. Uh, 31% of adults said that they're seeing an increased difficulty meeting Financial needs, and again, this is going back to what people were experiencing late May, or sorry, late April, early May. But that number was even higher than when we start looking at categories of younger people. So hmm. again, if we're looking at that age group from eighteen to twenty nine. 41% of respondents said that they're seeing an increased difficulty meeting financial needs. And, and maybe that's because of different types of jobs. Right. Right. Uh, what about the thing that we've heard Dr.
1: Bonnie Henry say over and over and over again, if you're not feeling well, if you are sick, if you even feel maybe the slightest you know, symptom of anything, then you should stay home. What about people like calling out ca- calling in sick to work and staying home? Are they more inclined to do that?
4: Yeah, this one I found really interesting because I bet there's been a big cultural shift and a big mindset shift since this survey was first done to where we might be now. So when the survey was first conducted, nearly 80% of respondents said that they can stay home when they're sick. But 67% of respondents said they do stay home when they're sick. So, you know, 80% of people said, yeah, I could take the time off if I needed to. But 67% of people said that they actually do stay home when they're sick. We had a lot of conversations in the early days of this pandemic about the the culture behind that. And, and, you know, me especially, you know, you were raised to think that, you know, a good work ethic is... Tough it out. Yeah, you go into work. You you have the sniffles. You're still going to go into work. Anyway, suck it up. I mean, how many conversations in particular did we have about the construction industry when this pandemic was first breaking? Absolutely. The culture on a construction site is you get out of bed, even if, you know, your head is pounding and you got the sniffles, you get out of bed and you go down to that job site and you get the job done. And now I think… There's going to be a big cultural shift moving away from that mentality, away from it being a reflection of your work ethic.
1: I also think, though, management has to change that as well, right? Because that's a message that I think employees get from managers and and their bosses, and that is you better show up at work. It's too expensive to replace you. It's too inconvenient. You better show up at work. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot that needs to go on there. Uh, Nikki, I just want to also ask you quickly about a topic Gordon and I were discussing earlier. Nightclubs, bars, you know, Doctor P- Bonnie Henry very strongly insinuating yesterday that mo- either more rules are coming or she's you know things are going to have to be shut down. Do you
4: support that idea of shutting down nightclubs and bars? Oh, again? see again, I I would love the province to go back to normal again. I want people to to have jobs and, and to be able to I guess enjoy some bit of summer. But I think that we're seeing certain parts of the industry he unable dip- to diplomatic. keep these cases down. I'm trying to be very
5: diplomatic <laughs> here. I'm,
4: thinking, I'm <laughs> thinking about those 60 cases that were linked to the yeah. corona area, people going up there, uh, partying, having a good time, going to bars, going to nightclubs. I, I don't want to see them closed down. You know what, I'm going to go on the, I'm going to say, I, I want to see them stay open a little bit longer. Let's see. But they're not doing Aaron.
1: their job, like they're not helping,
4: essentially. Well, yeah, I mean, I can't argue with that, can I? Because we are we are seeing cases linked linked to these yeah. bars and nightclubs. So, I mean, unless unless they can ensure physical distancing, which how do and they're you do in a nightclub? Yeah. You're not,
1: right? So, all right, we'll find out what other people think too. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Is it time to crack down harder on bars and nightclubs, or should they be shut down once again so that everything else can stay
0: open? This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, it's a challenging time for a lot of industries out there, and you can add trucking to that list for sure. Lots of stressors on truckers these days. And now a new app is actually aiming to help make something like navigation easier for all those B.C. truck drivers out there. Dave Earl, the president of the B.C. Trucking Association, had a chance to speak
6: to our Nikki Reitmeyer. Before we talk about the solution, which is the app... Why don't we talk about some of the challenges or some of the problems that drivers face, especially as they try to navigate new routes?
7: Well, I mean, it's not only with new routes, it's with new cargo. And this is specifically uh, dealing with cargo that's of an odd dimension, if you will, slightly oversized or or all the way to uh, greatly oversized where permits are required. And what this app does is it allows carriers and drivers to actually get information in terms of dimensions of loads that can move around the Lower Mainland. Um, you know, Every once in a while you'll hear about a vehicle striking an old pass or being in an area it shouldn't be. Uh, and this app is really designed to give the information to the driver and to the carrier to be able to plan their route uh, to make sure that what they're moving can actually move around safely.
6: That is really cool stuff. This even includes uh, municipal bylaws that they need to know as well, right?
7: That's correct. You know, And when you think about moving a large load out of the Lower Mainland, particularly coming out of, for example, uh, the Fraser Surrey Docks or British Columbia's, uh, I, I guess the best way to think about it, we call it break bulk, which is this large cargo that can't be reduced. And so you see these major pieces of equipment uh, moving around. Um, And getting from where it is uh, into the interior can be a real challenge when you take a look at all the uh, overhead obstructions and uh, dimensions of corners to be able to make turns and everything else. So what this app does is it is designed uh, to allow companies to be able to plan their routes, to be able to quote the job very efficiently, and uh, not to run into trouble.
6: And this app also lets drivers know about facilities that they may need to access along their route too, which I think is brilliant stuff like bathrooms and restaurants.
7: Oh, sure does. You know, and one of the things that we've learned going through this COVID pandemic, particularly in the early days when restaurants were closed and washrooms were closed, uh, we learned very quickly how important that is uh, for the drivers to be able to access those services as they move about our communities.
6: And of course, keeping to a schedule is so important when you're moving cargo. And this app even allows drivers to see what routes might be
7: delayed too, right? Absolutely. You know, And the intent behind it is to make movements more efficient, uh, to make them safer, and to make them uh, able to be able to be planned more effectively. Uh, so it really does create a level of efficiency that we've uh, found very difficult and very challenging to this point.
6: Okay, so I'm sure that any truck drivers who are hearing this right now are going, okay, tell me about this app, where can I get it?
7: <laughs> That's exactly And I mean, literally, it, it's downloaded on various online platforms. Um, you know, and of course, this is a pre-planning tool. This is not sitting in your cab and track wondering where you go. Uh, this is a planning tool. Um, there are other tools available as well, uh, particularly when they move outside of the municipal boundaries and uh, TransLink's major truck network. Um, you know, and we really encourage drivers to use those and I'm happy to report uh, many, many drivers use them on a regular basis.
6: That is brilliant. Well, Dave, is there anything about this app that is that's special that we, we haven't discussed yet that we should highlight?
7: You know, one of the things that he is I don't think a lot of people realize that TransLink is also not just responsible for public transportation, they're also responsible for a major road network in the Lower Mainland. And uh, they take that responsibility very, very seriously. And we are just so pleased that they uh, they've worked so diligently to develop this app. Uh, it's a real uh, progressive step. And uh, we just say thank you. It's
1: kind of cool, right? That's Dave Earle, president of the B.C. Trucking Association, talking about a new app that helps make navigation easier for B.C. truck drivers out there. A little behind the scenes look.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: All right, all you parents and teachers out there, we all want to know what's going to happen when school resumes in September. We haven't got the full plan yet from the provincial government. We've been told that it is coming in the next week or two, but we do know that there's going to have to be some changes, right? It's not going to be school as we had it a year ago. Uh, It's going to be not what we had in the spring. So, what is it going to look like? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Stephanie Higginson, who's the president of the British Columbia School Trustees Association. Stephanie, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. Do you have any idea what parents might expect in September?
5: Uh, you know, we've been told that we'll hear, you know, what stage we will be opening at uh, next week from the minister, I think sometime uh, late next week. But we, we did see in May the Ministry of Education did uh, publish sort of the five stages for K-12 education, that went stage one was a full reopen, uh, you know, full operation K to twelve in school, a hundred, a hundred percent. And stage two was the K to seven students, or elementary, I should say, elementary in in school, a hundred percent, and secondary in school, sort of uh, about fifty percent. And then the next stages sort of go to uh, lower and lower occupancy in the schools and time in the schools based on where we're at with the illness and the transmission of the illness. The, you know I've heard the the Minister say over and over again, and I think even the Premier say that they're really really hoping to have as many students in school as possible. We know there's no substitute for in-class instruction, so I'm really hoping for one of those stage one or stage two uh, announcement next week.
1: will there be hybrid learning?
5: Well, that's uh, really up to each school district how they handle each of those stages when you say hybrid, I think that one of the things I've noticed as we've been through this very fast and furious um, pace since March is that we've come up with all these new terms and they actually mean something different depending right. on where you are. So, uh, I, you know, I think that if we are in a stage where, such as Stage 2 that has secondary students in 50% of the time, what we're going to see is that the students are going to be receiving in-class instruction, of the time, and then there is going to be some requirement for them to do some independent self-directed learning the other 50% of the time, and that bridge being gapped by some kind of remote and virtual contact with their teachers.
1: So for the younger children, then, so elementary school children, is it safe to say that parents can expect that school boards should be preparing for having all those kids back in the classrooms?
5: I don't think it's safe to say anything yet, and I think we saw that after yesterday's announcement from Dr. Henry. I think... What is safe to say is that we all have to adjust our expectations now for the, uh, you know, the remainder of dealing with this pandemic and that the new normal for all of us is going to be able to be nimble and responsive when possible. And there are certainly families out there where it's it's not as possible to be nimble and responsive. And so what I've seen through the ministry, excuse me, is that they are working very hard to allow those essential support worker kids Mm -hmm. to be in school full time excuse me, so that they can, um, those people who don't have the ability to be as responsive can have their their children in class uh, full-time when necessary.
1: Right. How does the BCSTA feel about the issue of kids wearing masks at school?
5: Uh, You know what? We don't take a position on that. What we take our direction from is our provincial health officer. I think BC has an exceptional provincial health office that has done an exceptional job leading us through this health crisis, and we will take direction from them and not turn this into a political issue at all. Right, so you're
1: waiting for them to tell you, essentially.
5: Yeah, if they, if, if that is something that the Provincial Health Office feels is necessary, then we will work hard with the ministry to ensure the safest and smoothest rollout of that.
1: Okay, so what did we learn then from the trial run that we had with sending some kids back to school in June?
5: Well, I think what we learned is that... Um, You know what we're capable of we were the only jurisdiction in Canada that brought kids back uh, province-wide we saw that kids are actually very good at this especially the younger ones that everybody was very concerned about and so I think we saw that we can be um, nimble and we can be flexible through this and so we learned that there was no uh, school-wide outbreaks 200,000 students in schools across the province and so those health and safety protocols that were put into place were very successful. And, and that is despite the fact that one independent school and one public school did, uh, in fact, have a staff member test positive. But those, those, those um, that they did not transmit to anyone in the school. So that shows that those health and safety protocols that were in place were successful.
1: What are you hearing from school boards then in terms of capacity for bringing people, students back to the classrooms, right? One of the keys that did work, I think, from June is that you didn't have everybody back.
5: Mm -hmm. That is true. I think we're also learning, though, that, you know, with proper hand hygiene and, you know, proper social distancing amongst adults, that even in society, we can mitigate the spread of this illness. So, uh, you know, we learned that making sure that we have strong protocols in place and that we follow those protocols will help us ensure that we can have the most kids in the buildings as possible. And I think for some districts, that's going to be a little bit easier than others. But I also have all the faith in the world that those districts that have higher capacity within their schools are going to be able to figure this out in a way that works for the students and the families in their communities.
1: And what would you tell parents right now, Stephanie? Like, how should they be preparing their kids for September?
5: Well, I think that that's going to be a family discussion. Uh, You know, in my own house, we talk about making sure that you wash your hands before you leave school, you wash your hands when you get to school, and you wash your hands as many times as you can, and you don't touch your face, and you make sure that you keep your hands to yourself. I have, you know, two young boys. Sometimes that's harder. I was going to say
1: that's challenging, (laughs) right? Two young boys, that's hard.
5: You know, really working on that when we are around other friends around what it would look like to be in school, because, you know, my kids really enjoyed school and they want to be back as full-time as possible. So we really work on those messages with them and, and help prepare them for the possibility that it's going to look a little bit different than it did, right. but it needs to in order for everyone to be able to be back in.
1: Okay, that's, that's actually great advice then for parents out there, because a lot of parents want kids to be back in school. So the best thing to make that happen is for everybody to kind of be coaching those kids right now.
5: Yeah, and I think parents are doing that and kids are doing that, and, I, and but I also think that as a society as a whole, we all need to pay attention to those guidelines that Dr. Henry and the Provincial Health Office have given us because those you know those increases in numbers may have an impact on the ability for the province to have kids in school. So everybody needs to do their part so we can get those 650,000 students back in school for as much time as possible because we know that school is so important to the social emotional uh, and educational development of children
1: all right we'll see what happens so you expect that announcement next week
5: we've heard from the minister that it will be uh, late July he said so that's got to be
1: next week right uh, be next th- week. Yeah, exactly thank you so much for your time Stephanie hey okay,
5: thanks Amy that is Stephanie
1: Higginson president of the British Columbia School Trustees Association uh, talking about getting people kids parents teachers, ready to go back to school in September. Now, that plan is still there, even though we've had this kind of uptick in cases. But as Stephanie Higginson, I think, very rightly pointed out, there's a lot we can all be doing to make it happen successfully, right? And that is coaching your kids, talking to them about what September might look like, lots of hand washing. Just that whole teaching process can be going on right now if we do want to be able to pull this off successfully in September.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. We do have a possibility of having explosive growth in our
5: con- in our uh, in our outbreak here in BC if we're not careful in how we progress over the summer.
1: All right, so that is Dr. Bonnie Henry sounding the alarm yesterday that people need to rein it in, dial it back, uh, our social interactions with other people. She says we are at a crossroads here. And Google Mobility data is showing that people are socializing again, right? Our level of interactions are rising. Now, the outbreak in Kelowna continues to add more cases to the provincial total. And remember, That's because there were a couple of parties where people didn't know everybody who was there. So that makes contact tracing uh, difficult, if not impossible. And that means that we've got an increasing number of cases there. So this, as you can tell with Dr. Henry and the tone in her voice, like we are on the precipice here and there is a lot of concern that these numbers could start to spiral outwards. Wanted to talk more about that. Daniel Coombs joins us now, a UBC professor in mathematics who's done extensive work in modeling viruses and illness. Uh, Daniel, thank you very much for being here.
8: Uh, Good morning. Thanks.
1: So what do you think? When you look at those numbers mathematically, do you think there is cause for concern?
8: Yeah, I think uh, anybody who looks at the increase we've seen over the last um, three weeks or so, from a low of you know, we were t- ticking along at detecting maybe ten cases per day. Those cases were largely contained in the lower mainland, one way or another. Um, and now we, I-, I was I was concerned last week when we had a hundred cases over the the previous weekend, and now we had a hundred um, sorry a hundred cases over the previous week, and now we've had a hundred cases just over the last weekend in, in just a few days. Um, and what's also, as as, as you mentioned, is, is especially concerning is, is the fact that these cases are now, um, you know, there are there are cases in Vancouver Island. There's this large outbreaks uh, related to Kelowna in Interior Health. Um, so we're seeing this uh, around the province in places that, you know, until recently had had not mm-hmm. been seeing. Um, a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of detected cases
1: yeah that's what worried me too where I thought well since when was the interior an issue right like since when was Vancouver Island an issue they were very proud of their records for not having cases l- just a month ago do you think people became too lax
8: it's very hard to say when the when the numbers um, uh, of people infected are so low and and we we're pretty confident now they've been low for for a good long while um, that was based as well on the antibody testing data that came out last week, showing really just just a handful of people in their survey who had antibodies to the virus. so when when the numbers are so low, then you know in, in, in one sense you, you can be a little bit less careful um, and maybe nothing will happen. Um, but but as the, as those numbers start to creep up, you know every every event uh, with a lot of people, you know, is like a roll of the dice, and and eventually, uh, in a sense, you you know, you're going to hit lucky, or maybe mm-hmm. we should say you're going to hit unlucky.
1: So, when you look mathematically at the numbers, then it does it reach a point, and do you think we're close to that point where then they do exponentially start to go up?
8: Yeah, this is this is a very interesting thing that that we get to look at here, which is you know all all the mathematical models. Well maybe maybe not all, but the majority of mathematical models that you can you can sensibly look at do show exponential growth starting at some, uh, at some point. Um, I, I hope we haven't reached that point. I, I hope that you know, the, the, the world will tick along maybe a little bit higher for a while and, and then start to, to, to drop back down again um, as these uh, larger events roll through. Uh, it is notable that in the lower mainland the, the numbers of cases haven't really increased. Uh, that much, a lot of this is being driven um, from Kelowna, from interior health uh, numbers.
1: Right. So you think we are at that, but is this like a warning, do you think, to people right now, like this moment this week?
8: Yeah, I think this this is a serious warning. I think Dr. Henry uh, spelled it all out um, in, in, in her inimitable style yesterday. Um, you know, she's very calm and collected, but I think those notes of concern were there. I think she's concerned that contact tracing, um, could become ineffective if there's uh, very large numbers of people uh, gathering together and, and with larger numbers of contacts to trace it becomes potentially slower to contact everybody um, you have to maybe think about contacts of contacts and you can imagine that then grows to even larger numbers um, and then there's also more chance of you missing maybe some critical contacts uh, uh, you know, during that process just because of the, of the numbers that are involved so I think Dr. Henry was concerned and uh, I think she was right to be. Um, but with that said, you know, we're not in the same position we were in March, even if the numbers are uh, similar, actually, to, to numbers we were seeing in, in April and March. But we're in a better position because we we know, in a sense, um, um, a lot about the spread of this virus. We have very good contact tracing, you know, that, that can manage up to a point. And um, so I don't think it's, uh, it's, it's time for quite a panic now. It's time for a A careful and contemplative pullback uh, in behavior. Um, And and people really need to to, to think about um, these larger events that seem to be very problematic at the moment.
1: You're so right. I was thinking as you were talking there, like we know what works. We know it's not our schools that are causing a problem, right? Because we had, we did do that and we managed to keep that under control. We know it's not the healthcare system because they've been doing elective surgeries for a month now, and that's under control. And we know it's not retail. We know it's not opening up stores and letting people go shopping again. It's social interactions that people are having away from all those things.
8: It, it does seem that way at the moment. Um, and, um, you know, we're also this is this is the first time we've seen this. So, you know, we're reopening and, and there are going to be missteps and there are, there are going to be things where you might look back and say, well, that could have maybe been done a little bit better or that industry or that business could have maybe operated a little bit better, but it's a, it's a learning process um, for everybody as, as we, as we, as we try to come out of this. Yeah.
1: So do you see hotspots there where you, are there certain areas, like when you look at the numbers uh, and you look at that and think, okay, here's where we need to, you know, really contain this and here's where we need to contain it.
8: Um, I mean, this information is there in, in the data. Um, uh, I think, I think in, in, in some ways my, my main concern now is, is uncontrolled growth in, in one or more areas of the province and, and also d- wider dissemination uh, of the virus in, into communities, you know, uh, some, of, some of the communities that, that are maybe a little more remote and haven't seen this virus before maybe, maybe aren't expecting it in a sense at this point.
1: All right. So there's a lesson here for us. And Daniel, any advice for people?
8: Um. I know what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be meeting people in my backyard in small numbers. And when I go out uh, and about, I'm I'm wearing my mask at the moment.
1: Uh, Good advice, Daniel. Thank you.
0: Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi
1: other big stories in the news in the last 24 hours, the fact that Premier John Horgan wrote to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and asked him to decriminalize illicit substances, allowing BC to, well, fight harder against the overdose pandemic that we have here in this province. Now, we know that there's been a lot of talk about how that overdose crisis has been affecting different communities. We know that disproportionately it affects men between the ages of 18 and 50. That's a huge number, uh, is right there in that age group and that gender. Uh, we also know, though, that particular communities are impacted like the South Asian community. But we are seeing that those overdose death statistics among the South Asian community are also continuing to increase. So how do we reach into those areas, those communities, and get help for people, reach them with the message? Well, Upcar tatle has helped develop a new app that aims to connect people in the South Asian community with drug addiction services, which maybe previously weren't available or accessible or they didn't know about. So he joins us now. Upcar uh, Tatley is the managing director of Oxus Nexus. Upcar, thank you for being here.
9: Good
10: morning. Thanks for having me.
1: What, how, how, how did you come up with this idea? What gave you the impetus for this?
10: Really? It was a, uh... A lot of the information we were gathering on the research side of things when we were consult- consulting on the report that you see re- uh, that's been released. Um, my own personal background, um, working in uh, at the grassroots level in community as well as as a first responder years ago. Um, all indications were this was an emerging crisis. This is about four years ago. We started seeing an emerging trend. And sure enough, not just the South Asian community, but a lot of BIPOC communities, uh, communities that usually are over Overrepresented when it comes to the data, as you were talking about, just aren't receiving the uh, services that are required to stem the tide.
1: And why do you think that is?
10: Uh, it could be a num- numerous number of factors. Uh, you know, stigma is a big thing. For example, the South Asian community. It is, although there might be traditional use uh, amongst other communities as well. Uh, fentanyl and the things that we're contending with now—these are new substances. These are these are things that don't. Really constituent, or uh, do not make up. Uh, the the traditional using that we may have had perhaps in Mm -hmm. older countries or or in our cultural practices. And so along with that, there's stigma, abuse, uh, there's mental health challenges and now what we have as well is we have uh, COVID that's hitting. So we have people who are isolated in their homes and they really just do not know how to contend with this. So it's really imperative that we are able to get the right hands in their uh, information and resources into their hands so they know exactly what the steps are what the protocols are. The, uh, the gaps in delivery are immense. Uh, people, you know, they, they don't always respond well to English messages. Uh, we need to ensure that the proper resources are getting there, but they're delivered in a proper manner as well.
1: Okay, so then what's on this app? Uh, how will it help people?
10: Yeah, so so the... Critical features that we uh, recognize that are lacking are are the gaps in in service delivery um, stem really from language, accessibility, and ease of use. So what we have is we have a built-in 911 calling feature. So at any time you recognize that this is indeed an overdose, you're able to hit a button, connects you right away to 911. In addition to that, it, it gives you step by step guidance on uh, first aid, uh, identi- uh, steps to identify an overdose, as well as how to deliver naloxone. Uh, and all of this is done in a language that is most comfortable to you. You're able to select your language right away. Um, you know, it also engages dialogue. So that's another feature, too, is that so whether you're actually seeing an overdose or not, you're able to just go into the app and just kind of practice the protocols. What should we do in this situation? What should we do to even identify an overdose? So what we're hoping is that this will encourage dialogue in the community and start to reduce those barriers, decrease the stigma as well.
1: So how can people get this app? Is it
10: available? 100% available for free. Uh, That was critical in making sure that the barrier, there are no barriers to accessibility. So it's available for free on uh, Google Play uh, and App Store. And uh, you can also go to stopoverdoseapp.com uh, and uh, reach the links there as well.
1: Okay, so when you do look for it in those app stores, what, what do you search? Do you stop, like, stop the overdoses?
10: Yeah, so what you, you want to look for is overdose intervention. Um, and that will bring you to the app itself, um, ODI, Overdose Intervention. So you can, uh, both those app stores, you should be able to look it up, as well as on the website, as I mentioned, it'll, t- it'll if you go to the website, it'll bring you to a direct right. link.
1: Well, I certainly hope a lot of people take you up on that. Upcar, thank you so much for your time.
10: Thank you very much.
1: That's Upcar Tatley, Managing Director of Oxus Nexus. They've come out with this new ha- app there, as you were heard, that aims to help people in the South Asian community who have drug addiction issues who may not have been able or felt they were able to access what is out there right now. And hopefully this will reach them and help them with more information.
0: This is mornings with Simi.
1: Simi at cknw.com. How do we get the message through to those younger groups to make sure that they are practicing that physical distancing. One of the industries that has been hardest hit by all of this, of course, is the tourism industry. They had incredible growth in the last 10 years, and now it just all has come to a screeching halt. So what can we do to help them? They are pushing the province to give them a hand up. Joining us now is Vivek Sharma, the Vice Chair of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. Vivek, thank you very much for being here.
9: You're very welcome. Good morning.
1: Good morning. So I've seen that there is a plan that you have put forward to the province. <laughs> what does that involve?
9: Well, I mean, the foundation of the plan is to make sure that when we get on the other side, the the tourism business is in the tourism businesses across British Columbia are still standing on their feet and are able to deliver uh, and contribute to the economy as we were doing prior to COVID.
1: Okay, so in what ways, how can we get back there, though, when things are the way they are?
9: Well, I mean, in the plan, the plan has uh, the request from the government is based on three basic things. One is the biggest challenge that we are facing in the industry is liquidity. You know the tourism and hospitality industry is, uh, uh, you know, we, we the, the, most of the small businesses are are extremely short on cash to meet their day to day, you know, needs around fixed um, costs, etc. So that that constitutes about four hundred and seventy five million of the ask uh, that we have from the government.
1: Right. So that is that just thing. enough to like keep them afloat then until things potentially get more back to normal
9: yeah it's it's just barely to keep them afloat you know uh have their nose uh, above water so that everybody can keep breathing uh, the next piece of that is the uh the support for adaptation costs uh, you know as we all know every business has been uh asked uh, or needs to uh you know adapt Uh, the way they're doing their business physically, you know, so whether that means uh, creating barriers so that, you know, uh, there's distance between the guests, uh, contactless, you know, uh, service delivery, etc. And all of that comes at a cost. So there's about $190 million ask for supporting that. And the last piece, which is the smallest piece, is um, a support for developing a resilient um, BC-focused supply chain. So to to help uh, tourism and hostility businesses uh, uh, re-channel their supply chains to uh, re-engage in a stronger way with BC suppliers. Mm-hmm. And, and this is... a. a two-pronged strategy because not only it will help the B.C. uh, tourism and hostility business, but it will put money back into the larger B.C. economy through supporting local businesses.
1: Right. Oh, I like the sound of that one. How long, though, Vivek, would this support last? How long should the provincial government be helping out the sector?
9: From our estimates, you know, this will uh, the the recovery is easily an 18-month recovery.
1: You think so? And you think things
9: will start to pick up? Well, I mean, that's the hope, uh, is that, you know, in the next, uh, you know, 15 to 18 months, we will start seeing some level of normalcy report uh, returning back. And, and through the support, like I said at the beginning, it will help, uh, you know, the hospitality and tourism industry to, to be able to keep standing on their feet,
1: Right, which I know everybody wants that because those are jobs, right? Those are B.C. jobs. And uh, the numbers are staggering, aren't they, Vivek, about how much the industry is going to lose this year?
9: Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, from 2018 estimates, the, the tourism and hospitality industry is a $20 billion-plus industry. Uh, we have about 100,000 full-time and part-time jobs that have been already lost, Um uh, you know, if we don't get this package, uh, we estimate a further 120,000 odd jobs that could get lost. Wow, uh, that's a you lot. Know, more than 90 percent of the tourism businesses are, uh, through our latest surveys, reporting that they won't make uh, profit this year. So, and I mean, I can go on and on on the numbers, but yeah. uh, it's, it's you get the gist of where we are. Uh, uh, you know, at the at the edge of the cliff.
1: So, Vivek, then you've put this package forward. What have you heard from the provincial government? What are the next steps here?
9: Uh, Well, I mean, you know, the package just went out uh, on, on Friday, if I remember correctly. So it's still very early days. Uh obviously uh you know, we consulted uh with, you know, the larger tourism industry when this was put together and there were a lot of other key players involved in putting this together. Um and uh, you know, our, our industry our, our consultation with the government will be ongoing, you know.
1: Right. So you're hoping that they will lend a helping ear to this?
9: Yes, and I mean with fairness to the government, they've 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 done a whole lot for, you know, federally and provincially both i think our ask now is to get a little bit more strategic in in how we are aiding various businesses right. and and look at where the actual need periods are
1: you know vivek something that you described there the one of the tenets of this plan is for the tourism industry to put more emphasis on supply chains that are from right here in bc and it's mm-hmm. just it's i'm just so surprised that we weren't doing that before
9: well, no, we were, uh, you know, it's not that we were not doing it before, but uh, I think this is, you know, like with every challenge comes an opportunity and and this is a great opportunity for us to, again, strategically make sure that we are leveraging that to the maximum. Now, uh, you know. And, and the reason we are asking for this aid is because sometimes it takes a lot more effort, uh, both financially and, uh, you know, through the desire to to do those kind of things, you know, mm-hmm. and through the financial support, uh, you know, it, it, it will make it uh, all the more worth its while.
1: All right, Vivek, thank you very much for your time this morning.
9: Thank you very much. Have a good day.
1: You too. That's Vivek Sharma, who's the vice chair of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. They have put together a support package that they are pitching the BC government saying, listen, the tourism and hospitality sector in this province needs a lot of help. They think they were generating something like twenty billion dollars a year a couple of years ago. This year they're gonna be lucky if that's six. That is a drop off a cliff is what that is. They're looking for $680 million in recovery stimulus spending, all sorts of different initiatives and help. And hopefully they said that'll help them with the bare minimum through the next 18 months. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.